Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hello. For this part of your lecture series, I will be talking about the experiences of gay Muslims. But before we get into the discussion, it's important to set the scene. See, nobody's spirituality or sexuality exists in a political vacuum. And we've seen some pretty heated politicised debates about gendered and sexual bodies recently in different spheres, which have a bearing on how we think about supposedly big or abstract ideas like gender or sexuality or Islam or race and so on. And these ideas produce mental images which shape the ways in which we experience or perceive our bodies, our identities, and other people's bodies and other people's identities. Now, there are three different areas of contestation that I'm thinking of which are relevant. First, there are the conflicts about gender and sexuality which take place within the realms of secular liberal discourses. For example, I'm thinking of the frequently hostile debates now between some advocates of trans identity or trans inclusion and some feminists who are critical or dismissive of claims to trans identity and trans inclusion. Now, it's not my purpose to take sides in this debate. I'm just raising the fact that it's all a bit complex and this is one way in which gendered and sexual bodies are thought about, talked about and thought about. Notice, however, that religion is not really a key factor in these debates, or not in an overt way anyway, that I've noticed. Now, second, there are debates that clearly pit religious discourses or values against secular discourses or values. So examples include quite highly charged discussions about Muslim women's dress. For example, do we ban the burqa or niqab or face veil in the West? Or what about the supposed obstacles that religion, defined in a certain way, places on the rights and inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or intersex people? Now in these debates, the framing is very much that secular liberal values are good for gender and sexual rights and diversity, and religion is often painted as a problem or as the enemy. The picture is more complicated than that, as I've shown already regarding trans identity and inclusion and feminism. Also, debates about patriarchy, heteronormativity, women's sexuality, and LGBTQI inclusion are already happening within religious communities and have been happening for a long time already now. Because religions are not monolithic. These debates are taking place within different Christian denominations, within different Muslim contexts, or Jewish contexts, or Hindu, or Buddhist, or Sikh, and so on. But the idea that gender and sexuality are fault lines between religion and secular values in the West is very pervasive. Finally, my third cluster is less an example than it is a reminder. Basically, we need to remember that race and class are integral factors in any discussion about spirituality and the body. 
Remember George Floyd, who was killed by Derek Chauvin, a white police officer who basically suffocated him to death? This atrocity is rightly seen as a matter of racial injustice. What's less obvious from this example is that gendered and sexual stereotypes have often been used to justify the most atrocious forms of racism. For example, the idea that black men and women are oversexed, or that brown or Asian men are sexual predators, has informed a long legacy of surveillance, monitoring, and systemic punishment of black and brown men at the hands of patriarchal white authority structures. I'm thinking, for example, of the history of lynchings in the United States of America and the ways in which gendered, sexual and racist stereotypes combined to drive these crimes against humanity. And white, patriarchal, heteronormative expressions of Christianity have often been used to justify these forms of oppression. But, as I've said, religions are not monolithic. So American Christianity is also profoundly shaped by abolitionist, feminist, and anti-racist currents, for example, in the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and the influence of other African-American activists, such as the Black Muslim leader Malcolm X. These are some of the factors we need to take into account when thinking about the experiences of gay Muslims. But this lecture won't give you a ready-made argument about the experiences of gay Muslims and their spiritualities. Instead, we're going to think about what gay Muslim bodies expose or reveal about the intersections of religion, colonialism, race, and sex. Now, I am going to talk about sex a bit, or rather, I'm going to talk quite explicitly about some religious attitudes towards some sorts of sexual relations or sexual acts. I'm just saying that now so that you're ready. Anyway, let's start with the story. So I have a story that shows how these different factors, race, gender, class, colonialism, religion, and the body, come together in contemporary Britain. So let me tell you about Saleh, which is not his real name. Saleh is a gay British Arab whom I met while I was doing fieldwork research for my PhD back in 2012 and 2013. Now, Saleh wasn't born in Britain. He arrived here as a refugee from his country of origin in the Middle East, which I will not name in the interest of protecting his identity. So he had to flee that country while he was still a minor because his family found out that he was gay and was in a rela relationship with another boy. Now, his family in his home country is connected to the Islamist, Islamist establishment in that country. So they really weren't happy about this. And some male members of his immediate and extended family threatened to kill him. So Saleh decided he had to flee. Now, after arriving in Britain and getting legal status and citizenship, Saleh put himself through university and then got a job with a local council in London, which he loved. But when I interviewed him, he told me a story that clearly disturbed and offended him and which has clearly defined his experience as a gay Muslim in Britain. So he told me this story in 2012, but he said it took place some years before that, so quite soon after the 7 July London bombings in 2005. So Saleh said that quite soon after this, um, 
Around this time, you know, when he was at work, he used to ask for a longer lunch break on Fridays so that he could go to the mosque for Friday prayers. And often on Fridays, he would celebrate this and display cultural markers of his identity. So he'd wear a robe or a jubba, which is characteristic of Arab culture. He had a beard and he would wear a skull cap. So on this particular Friday, he was wearing all of this and carrying a backpack. And he said he was minding his own business, waiting for a bus, and was stopped and searched by two police officers. Where are you going? They asked. To the mosque, he said. Why are you going to the mosque? For Friday prayers. Who are you going to meet at the mosque? I'm going to meet my husband. <laughs> so Saleh said when he gave them this answer, they looked confused. You see, at this time, Saleh was also already in a civil partnership with another Muslim man, whom he regarded as his husband. So he and his husband were going to meet at the mosque, pray together and go off to have lunch before going back to work. So Saleh was incensed that the police first of all stopped and searched him because of how he looked, and then because of how he looked and where he was going, suddenly couldn't compute that he was also gay? He was offended that the powerful visual stereotype of what a Muslim terrorist or a conservative Muslim looks like meant that they were skeptical that he was actually gay. Can a visible, someone who is visibly Muslim not also be proudly gay? So Saleh is not the only person I spoke to, and this is not the only story like this that I came across, although it's one of the more colourful ones. So I interviewed 29 gay Muslims, men and women, in Malaysia and Britain, and basically immersed myself in their social worlds. I ate with them, I prayed with them, I went clubbing with them, I went on pride marches with them, I played sports with them, I fasted in Ramadan with them. You get the idea. So for my research, I also drew upon my own experiences because I am gay and I am Muslim. I was born and raised in Malaysia and relocated to the UK more than 10 years ago. And so at the time I was doing my research, I was grappling with the same sorts of questions I posed to my participants in both countries. And I've stayed in touch with many of them ever since. And some of them have become really close friends, almost like family. So you can read about my research in my book, The Making of a Gay Muslim, Religion, Sexuality and Identity in Malaysia and Britain. So now that I've set the context, let's take a deeper dive. I'd like us to consider three main areas in which gay Muslims navigate their spiritualities and their physical bodies. The first area touches on the dominant perceptions about Islam and same-sex relations and how accurate or inaccurate these are. The second area explores the similarities and differences between our contemporary notions of sex and gender and pre-modern understandings of sex and gender. The third area looks at how modern Western colonialism and racism have affected the ways in which we think of sexual and gendered bodies. Then I will come back to Saleh for a last little provocation. But speaking of Saleh again, one thing we can glean from the little anecdote I shared about him was that 
there is still a dominant assumption that Islam inherently and absolutely opposes same-sex relations and any kind of gender and sexual diversity. This is why a body that appears explicitly gay is difficult to imagine as also explicitly Muslim and vice versa. So this powerful image is constantly reproduced within Islam by Islamic authority figures and then they get amplified or fixated upon by Islamophobic ideologues, especially in the West, and then they just feed each other. So I'd like to now explore one important variation of this idea that Islam inherently opposes gender and sexual diversity. So this is quite succinctly captured in a quote by Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who is an influential Islamic scholar born in Egypt and now based in Qatar. So this is um, an excerpt from a longer Q&A on a television show that he did some years back about his own religious rulings on homosexuality. So this is him speaking, it's originally in Arabic, this is a translation. So he says, the word nature or fitra is derived from the term for creation, al-fatr, as in the verse, all praise belongs to God, the creator, fatr, of the heavens and earth. And this is a verse from the Quran, from chapter 35, uh, which is the chapter of Fatir, or, you know, that can be translated as the originator. So that's verse one of chapter 35. So he goes on to say, the human being is created with innate disposition to feel attraction to the other sex, with man attracted to woman and woman attracted to man. The religion of Islam came to preserve the original human nature, not to oppose this nature by rebelling against nature. So this is a quote, an excerpt um, of a quote by Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi. So what do we notice about this quote? There is, first of all, the argument that there is a divine order of what is natural in terms of gender and sexuality and that gender and sexuality seem to be links in a chain that can never be separated. So we are all made either male or female and men must be attracted to women and vice versa. Simple as that. This is the Islamic view of things according to scholars like Yusuf al-Qaradawi and anything that legitimizes trans identity or same-sex relationships is basically a rebellion against nature and therefore God. If this is true, then Islamic history should display an uncompromising intolerance towards same-sex relations in all places and all times, right? Well, I think you know where I'm going with this. I'm going to complicate the picture slightly. So let's look now at this summary of how traditional pre-modern Islamic jurists largely ruled on illegal sexual relations, right? Because this was a legal category. What sort of sexual relations are illegal and what sorts are illegal? So I'm going to read out now the different combinations of sexual relations and their religious and legal consequences. So there are two parties here, the penetrator and the person being penetrated, and then there's a legal ruling. So if the person doing the penetrating is a minor and or insane boy, and this is a legal category, the category of sanity um, in classical Islamic jurisprudence. So if the penetrator is a minor and or an insane boy, 
who is penetrating a free, sane adult woman, there is no punishment. If the penetrator is a free, sane adult woman who is penetrating another free, sane adult woman, there is no had punishment. Now, for those of you who are not familiar, had um, is an Arabic term that basically means limits. So this describes um, the limits of punishments that are explicitly mentioned in the Quran for uh, a, a category of crimes, like a, a number of crimes that are specifically uh, mentioned in the Quran. So crimes like murder, theft, and adultery, and so on. Um, and there's lots of Islamic legal thought on the applicability and range of punishments for these crimes, and also the place of discretionary punishments or ta'zir. So there's a debate about what is had and what is ta'zir, um, and I'm not going to go into that. It's just so that you know the context. So this is what had means. So next category. If the penetrator is a free, sane adult male, who is penetrating a free, sane adult woman, there is a had punishment because this is the sort of thing that is mentioned in the Quran, right? Although, as I said, there, there are different ways of interpreting different circumstances and consequences and so on. So anyway, but this is a summary. This is largely what um, Islamic jurists said. Next category, free, sane adult male penetrating a minor and or insane girl. There is no hard punishment for the girl, but the man is punished. This is in classical Islamic jurisprudence. If it's a minor and or insane boy penetrating another minor and or insane girl and boy, no punishment. If it's a free adult male master penetrating his own male slave, no hard punishment. If it's a free, sane adult male penetrating a minor and or insane boy, the man is punished, the boy is not punished. If it's a minor and or insane boy penetrating a free, sane adult male, no punishment. Finally, a free, sane adult male penetrating a free, sane adult male both get punished. Okay, that's the list. There, there are more combinations, but as I said, this is a summary of general rulings for the different combinations of uh, penetrative sex. What do you notice about this list? Well, I've given it away slightly. First of all, it is very focused on penetration, specifically penetration by a male sexual organ. This is why when there is no actual penetration by a male sexual organ, the rules could be a lot more lenient. And traditional Islamic scholars were actually quite lenient when it came to the question of whether two people of the same gender could kiss, could fondle each other, or even engage in mutual sexual pleasuring, like mutual masturbation, which did not amount to penetration by male genitalia. All of these things were basically, you know, they were kind of, they were not outrightly forbidden, even if they were frowned upon, they were just seen as, well, you know, okay, whatever, whatever happens in private happens in private. It might seem then that according to traditional Islamic jurisprudence, real sex was defined as having to involve penetration. 
uh, and penetrative sex could only legally happen between a man and a woman who were married to each other. Anything else was illegal and had to be punished, right? Again, I'm going to complicate this picture. I'd like to stress that even this view is misleading. Because why then, in this list that I've just read out, is there no religious punishment? When one free sane adult woman has sex with another free sane adult woman. I mean, I've already said, you know, even if this involves penetration, according to classical Islamic jurists, that penetration couldn't possibly involve a male sexual organ. So no punishment. But what about when an underaged boy or a male who is not of sound mind penetrates another underaged boy or another male who is not of sound mind? And why is there no punishment when a free adult male master penetrates his own male slave? In other words, there were situations, quite a number of them in fact, in which same-sex acts or sex outside of marriage were either allowed in Islam or not explicitly forbidden. The mitigating factors were economic status, age, and state of mind. And of course, whether a male sexual organ was involved. So this brings me to another factor to consider, which is whether the sexual act could produce offspring. Now, for some jurists, anal sex between two free sane adult men was clearly not the equivalent of heterosexual adultery between a free sane male and a free sane female, because in the same sex act, there was no possibility for procreation. So for them, it had to carry a lesser punishment. But for other jurists, the primary consideration was that anal sex took place outside of legal heterosexual marriage. And so it had the same moral consequences as heterosexual adultery, which, as I've explained, carried punishment according to their reading of Islamic sexual textual sources. Now, these categories and this kind of legal logic might seem strange or distasteful or even immoral according to our modern sensibilities, but I'm just raising them for us to remember that these are actual examples of rulings that were developed many hundred, perhaps a thousand years ago. And we don't necessarily need to accept them by today's standards, whatever our religious or cultural background, but it's important for us to realize that these jurists in Muslim contexts in pre-modern times, even they didn't have a monolithic view of what was natural in relation to homosexuality or heterosexuality. I mean, are we really saying that they regarded slavery as divinely ordained or natural? And even if they did, do modern Muslims need to accept these views about slavery? And if modern Muslims oppose slavery today, even if it was religiously condoned in the past, then isn't there room to rethink our ideas about romantic and sexual relationships? So in the interest of time, we'll have to pause here, but I'll leave you with the first thing I want you to consider before we move on to the next point. And it's this. Should current views about the naturalness or supposed unnaturalness of same-sex relations in Islam take into account these historical factors in the construction of Muslim personhood, age, economic status, soundness of mind, marital status, and so on. And this consideration leads quite naturally to the next area I want to explore, 
which is the similarities and differences between pre-modern and modern models of gender and sexuality. So to start this section, I want to draw your attention to Lady Gaga. Specifically, consider early Lady Gaga and her 2011 hit, Born This Way, which contains these lyrics. No matter gay, straight or bi, lesbian, transgendered life, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to survive. I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. Ooh, there ain't no other way. Okay, I'll stop now. But anyway, to summarize, according to Lady Gaga, our sexual orientation and gender identity are innate gay, straight, bi, trans, these are all natural, divinely ordained identities, and there is nothing wrong with any of them. You might actually take this as a direct rebuttal towards the kind of view espoused by Yusuf al-Qaradawi, which I discussed earlier, or, in the case of the West, is like a repudiation of the attitudes of the Victorians. Because let's remember that sodomy or buggery was for centuries outlawed in England and subsequently throughout the British Empire. I mean, the British were basically responsible for introducing anti-sodomy laws throughout their empire, most infamously through Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code of 1861, which outlawed carnal intercourse against the order of nature. So this idea of what was a natural sexual and gender order was quite central to Victorian British mores. And this is why British colonials were extremely squeamish about the supposedly perverse sexual behaviours in the animal kingdom that they encountered. So let's take the example of George Murray Levick the British Antarctic explorer, naval surgeon, and founder of the Public Schools Exploring Society. So quite early on in his fieldwork in the Antarctic, Levick was traumatised when he witnessed a male Adelie penguin trying to have sex with a dead female. And this was only the beginning. Levick then encountered male penguins having sex with other males, and even raping females, including chicks and then murdering them afterwards. So this idea of nature being something divinely ordained and perfect was challenged quite severely through his observations. He was basically witnessing carnal intercourse against the order of nature happening with alarming frequency in nature. So he was so aghast that he furtively wrote his observations in Greek, so that they could only be deciphered by fellow learned gentlemen. And when he later published his findings about the penguins, he omitted all references to their sexual habits. And when he finally did write a paper on the sexual behaviour of the penguins, he circulated it only amongst a small circle. It took another 50 years before his observations about the penguins were circulated amongst the wider scientific community. So these Victorian and Edwardian ideas about what was natural or unnatural about sex and gender and their suppression of alternative views or observations accompanied the transformation from what we call a one-sex to two-sex model of the human body in Western scientific discourse. See, 
For thousands of years, the dominant medical paradigm in Europe held that women had the same genitals as men. I know, I'm going to get into this now. So, to recap, for thousands of years, the dominant medical paradigm in Europe held that women had the same genitals as men. It's just that women's organs were inverted such that they stayed inside their bodies. So, according to this view and explicit terminology to follow now, the vagina was a kind of interior penis. The labia was the equivalent of the foreskin. The uterus was the scrotum. And the ovaries were the equivalent of testicles. And you can kind of see how this could make sense in a certain way. So this logic owed much to the 2nd and 3rd century Greek physician Claudius Galenus, or Galen of Pergamon, who argued that women were essentially men, but they lacked a vital heat. His words, not mine. This lack of heat in women resulted in reversed anatomical structures that were outwardly visible in men. So according to this logic, procreation was only possible when both the male and female partner achieved orgasm during sex. So a woman who did not achieve sexual climax could not by definition become pregnant. By the 19th century, however, this one sex model in the West was replaced by a two sex model, which said that men and women were different in every conceivable aspect of body and soul and physically and morally. It was increasingly argued by men, overwhelmingly, that these sexual differences were solidly grounded in nature. And guess what? The idea that women needed to achieve orgasm in order to get pregnant disappeared. Instead, the idea that women had actually much lower sexual desire compared to men began to take hold. And this idea later led to stereotypes, which are still alive today, that men are naturally obsessed with sex, while women naturally yearn for romance. And scientific discovery can only partly explain this paradigm shift. I mean, women have faced different varieties of subjugation under both two-sex and one-sex models. The differences between whether women were regarded as being altogether separate from, yet inferior to men in the two-sex model, or if they were simply inferior versions of men according to the one-sex model. Now, another variation of the one-sex model became prevalent in the medical discourses of the Ottoman Empire. And Ottoman medical discourses were also heavily influenced by Galenic medicine. So let's call this version of the one-sex model the Ottoman variant. So in this Ottoman variant, man occupied the apex of terrestrial creation, whereas woman was regarded as a less developed version of man. And women's genitals were seen as flawed versions of men's genitals. So some historians refer to this as the imperfect man rather than one sex model. And furthermore, in the Ottoman context, the lack of a two sex model in that cultural situation meant that same sex relations were rarely discussed in medical circles in terms of what was natural. So for example, the ninth century physician Al-Razi, or Razis as he's known in the West, 
regarded a man who enjoyed taking on the passive sexual role with another man as biologically inferior, but not morally inferior. I mean, but later physicians such as Ibn Sina or Avicenna, as he's known in the West, disagreed, and they held that penetrative male homosexual sex was a sinful cultural disease. The thing is, all of these Muslim thinkers only focused their judgments on the man taking the passive sexual role, the person who was being penetrated. The penetrating partner was never considered a problem in any way. And actually, in the grander scheme of things, Ottoman attitudes were actually mostly indifferent to what we now regard as active and passive male homosexuality, despite the many legal rulings on liwat or sodomy, which I've already touched upon. So then later, the two-sex model that emerged in Western Europe only gained a partial influence in late Ottoman and post-Ottoman societies. Now, this is partly because in Europe, the two-sex model evolved gradually and was the result of developments from outside the realm of medicine. And so this included new waves of activism by European women to participate more fully in politics and public life and other struggles to define citizenship and the public sphere more generally during and after the Enlightenment. So in the Western European context, the idea of women as a totally different sex rather than a flawed version of the male sex was actually an effective tool, an effective strategy of campaigning for the rights of women based on gender complementarity. So this was the background against which new medical discourses on sex emerged in Western Europe and gradually took hold. Now, the trajectory of social change was different in the Middle East, and so the new two-sex model could not be anchored by wider transformations in politics and public attitudes there. So I'd like to put a very strong health warning here. I'm not saying that there was no enlightenment in Muslim societies, which is one of the Orientalist and Islamophobic stereotypes that's still in circulation now. No, I'm just saying that the trajectories of political development happened differently in Western Europe compared to the Middle East, which is an empirical fact, and that this then influenced sexual and gender politics differently too. But this is a social process. It's not inherent in either European civilization or Muslim culture. It's a social and political process. But anyway, on the whole, in the Ottoman Empire and Western Europe, changing perceptions of biological sex were always informed by the notion that heterosexual men embodied the human ideal. Women and non-heterosexuals were inferior. In the West, women were inferior under the one-sex model, and despite achieving some gains after the Enlightenment, they remained inferior under the emerging two-sex model. How else do we explain the disappearance of the female orgasm in two-sex discourses and the ensuing logic under this model that women were naturally subservient, naturally nurturing, delicate, and less rational than men? So regardless of the scientific discoveries about males and females throughout the ages, the one-sex and two-sex models have largely served as political ranking systems to ensure that heterosexual men stay at the top of social hierarchies. So I'm not saying now that we should forget everything we know or feel about the sexed nature of our bodies. And it would be ridiculous to argue that there are absolutely no differences between people who are male, female, intersex, transgender, homosexual, heterosexual, or bisexual. In fact, some feminist historians and scientists, such as Anne Fausto Sterling, 
suggests that we should actually be thinking of a five-sex model encompassing males, females, and what she describes as true hermaphrodites who possess one testis and one ovary, male pseudo-hermaphrodites who have testes and some aspects of female genitalia but no ovaries, and female pseudo-hermaphrodites who have ovaries and some aspects of the male genitalia but lack testes. So in the interest of time and space, I'm going to leave these discussions about emerging sex and gender models and terminology for now. The point is that we need better ways of analysing, reporting and representing sex and gender differences to challenge, or at the very least not to perpetuate, hierarchies that punish those among us who do not conform to sex and gender stereotypes. So now, I want to leave you with a second thought to consider when we're talking about gay Muslims which is this. Do current debates about gay Muslim sexualities and spiritualities take sufficient account of these historical constructions of sex and gender and how they evolved in different political and cultural circumstances? Okay, let's move on now. So the differences between these variants, these variants of the one sex and two sex models of sex and gender became amplified during the era of Western colonialism. This is a legacy which continues to the present day. And sex and gender stereotypes proliferated alongside racial stereotypes. They were backed up by supposedly scientific discoveries of the Victorian era, and they formed part of the imperialist ideology that motivated Western colonial expansion. These racialized and gendered ideologies purportedly backed up by scientific evidence, became instruments of political power to rule over vast populations. Environmental and biological factors became the source of ideas such as the inherent laziness or lack of intelligence of non-European peoples, you know, the so-called myth of the lazy native, you know, the myth of the so-called lazy native, rather. Um, or there were myths about their sexual debauchery and slavery. And these myths and stereotypes contributed to beliefs about the white man's burden to bring civilization to the savages. So along with this came the, ex the colonial exploitation of non-European peoples, including mass enslavement, genocide or forced labor, forced labor and the extraction of resources from their lands. Now, this environmental racism also went hand in hand with sexual racism. For example, there were ideas inspired by Darwinian evolution theory that the climate or natural surroundings in non-European environments made black men and women over-sexualized or made sexual perverts out of Oriental or Muslim men. Now, these sexualized racist stereotypes also existed in Europe against other minority populations, for example, in beliefs about weak or sexually impotent Jewish men, which formed one of the ingredients of anti-Semitism in Europe. So this constellation of environmental and biological factors became used by the architects of European colonialism to monitor and control their colonized populations by regulating laws relating to marriage, childbirth, and sexual relations. And in popular culture, these images became subliminally entrenched through stories such as Tarzan and later King Kong. So this cocktail of ideas about race, religion, and sex 
resulted in some paradoxes or double standards of Western colonialism and imperialism. For example, Lord Cromer, who was the British controller general in Egypt, was a huge opponent of the veiling of Muslim women in Egypt because he thought this was just oppressive. At the same time, back in Britain, he was also opposed to granting British women the right to vote. And we can see these double standards even in the 21st century. For example, after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, one of the reasons given by US President George W. Bush for the US invasion of Afghanistan was the need to liberate Afghan women from the burqa. But back in the US, Bush was also opposed to reproductive rights for women and to LGBTQI rights. And we can also see this sort of double standard in the responses of the modern French state towards the issue of Muslim women's dress. So there's a term to describe these double standards, colonial feminism. But I, again, I don't have the space to discuss that in detail. To make a long story short, colonialism was a long and complicated process. It wasn't black and white, and it has ramifications to this day. We must remember that there was and still is significant opposition towards colonialism within the populations of imperial powers, just as there were different responses towards colonial rule within colonized populations. So one part of this picture is that in the waves of decolonization in Africa, Asia and the Caribbean after World War II, the political elites who were driven by anti-colonial activism, they won independence for their countries, but they also inherited colonial era laws and they had also internalized colonial attitudes and stereotypes about race, gender and sexuality. And the tables have turned now. For example, more than a century ago, the Victorians thought that Muslims in the Middle East were inferior because they did not condemn homosexuality enough. But in modern Western cultural discourse, Islam is often portrayed as problematic because it supposedly refuses to embrace gender and sexual diversity. This is a good place to talk about the third consideration I'd like to raise, which is this. Gay Muslim bodies disturbed the construction of a clash of civilizations thesis between Islam and the West and raise unresolved questions about the continuing legacies of colonialism, imperialism, and racism. And this is a good place to bring back Saleh. So there's a bit of a sequel to the anecdote I started with. The last time we were with Saleh, he was feeling really offended, and not only because he was stopped and searched by two police officers simply for looking Muslim, but also because they were skeptical of the fact that he was gay. So fast forward a couple of years. Saleh and one of his friends, Wakas, also a gay British Muslim but of Pakistani descent, were having a day out in South Hall in West London, which is a borough which with a very significant South Asian population. They were both just having a laugh and going into shops and being very flamboyant. And one shop they entered was selling Muslim women's dress. And Saleh actually started trying on different hijabs and robes to the bemusement of the shop attendants. Oh, it's for one of my aunts, he said. She's exactly the same size as me. It's a gift, it's a gift. 
So there he was parading different Muslim women's outfits in front of all the staring customers. And in the end, he and his friend Wakas had to actually buy one of the outfits because they felt really bad about putting the shop attendants through so much hassle. Then, after this fun day out had ended, Saleh and Wakas ended up at the tube station. And the joke's not over. Wakas says to Saleh, put it on. What? Saleh protests. I can't do that, not at the tube station. Wakas says to Saleh, put it on. And here's what happens next, as Saleh tells it. He says, I thought, okay, I'm going to wear a full typical, you know, because I've been called a sand nigger, you know, and all sorts. But I sat on the tube and I thought, you know what? Each time I got this, you know, hypocritical, very working class white person, they sat down. I started praying, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. And then the woman would start shaking. Then I'd go, boom! And you would see this person shoot out of their seat. And then he started allulating. And not only that, Saleh said that he also started flirting with the white male passengers he found cute, telling them that he was really a princess from the Gulf region and that he was trying to find a white knight in shining armour to save him. So this is probably a quirky story to end a lecture about gay Muslim bodies, but it does capture so many of the themes I raise above. Saleh is someone whose life is marked by attempts to be true to himself, to his own body, to live as a gay Muslim Arab man, who is free to practice his religion as visibly as he would like to, and to have romantic and erotic relationships that are true to his inner self. But the complex history of sex, gender, colonialism, race, and religion are part and parcel of where and how he presents his body in different times and different places. And the story of his rebellion on the tube is shocking, and perhaps some people might find it distasteful, but it is about turning the tables. It is one way that a gay Muslim might respond to the multiple sexual, racial, gendered, and religious stereotypes and prejudices that so many Muslims and queer people have to endure. Like I said at the beginning of this lecture, our notions or expressions of spirituality and the way we inhabit our bodies do not exist in a political vacuum. And it's also important to look at other social influences on spirituality and the body. In Saleh's case, romantic relationships, friendships, humour, a personal history of violent displacement and resettlement, and the impacts of situations beyond his control, such as the 7-7 bombings and the British state's surveillance of black, brown and Muslim populations. So in conclusion, gay Muslims must often navigate the extremes of patriarchal and heteronormative interpretations of Islam and Islamophobia and racism in real time and real physical locations. In this lecture, I've referred to one example of the lived experiences of a gay Muslim to demonstrate the importance for all of us to have a critical analysis of gender, sexuality, race, religion, and colonialism, and how these factors have been shaped by social forces throughout history. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. 
If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.